everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director at CFGI, and this is the program where we dig deeper to understand what matters most in business. Today, I'm excited to welcome my guest. It's uh, Mike Copa from RSM. Mike's a healthcare partner there. Mike, welcome to uh, Behind the Numbers. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. Yep. Um, Great having you here. Why don't you tell uh, the audience a little bit about who you are and maybe just a bit about RSM? Yeah, certainly. Uh, again, my, my name is Mike Copa, partner at uh, RSM in our healthcare practice. Uh, it's a national practice all across the U.S. Uh, I lead services really in the, in the Northeast. I'm based in uh, Edison, New Jersey, uh, but I spend a lot of time in you know, pretty much all of Eastern Pennsylvania, uh, all of New Jersey, and I have several colleagues up through the rest of the Northeast, New York City and North, uh, you know, where we, we cover a lot of uh, different healthcare providers, uh, all on the provider side versus the regulatory side, uh, but that's inclusive of you know hospitals and health systems, uh, medical practices, uh, some on the smaller side, but also large multi-state medical practices, uh, long-term care, uh, mental and behavioral health. You know, really a diverse uh, you know, representation of of the healthcare provider industry. Uh, as far as RSM is concerned, for those who may not be as, as familiar. Uh, we are the fifth largest firm in, in the country. Healthcare is one of our uh, priority industry verticals, uh, but we certainly serve other industries uh, fully across our you know, accounting, uh, audit and accounting, tax, yeah. and, and advisory services. So uh, certainly excited to be here today, talk a little bit about the industry. Uh, obviously, there's always so much going on in the healthcare industry, which is one of the reasons why uh, you know, I've pretty much dedicated my pushing 20-year career <laughs> to serving the industry. There's always something going on, something always dynamic about it. Um, and, you know, myself and all of my colleagues at RSM are, are constantly uh, learning and figuring out, you know, what, what is best for our, our clients and, and bringing them those ideas and thought leadership to help them through the challenges that, you know, they face on a day-to-day -day basis. Yep. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. So, and, and healthcare is a topic that resonates with everybody, whether you're in business or not in business, what have you. We're all faced with healthcare issues and, and dealing with the system, right? So, what I thought I might do is start out by asking you about how healthcare companies get paid. Maybe you can demystify that, uh, talk about the economics from the business side, and maybe dovetail that so that from a consumer lens, we can connect the dots and see how it might make sense, if it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's a variety of ways that they get paid, but I think most, most traditionally, as, as it stands now, uh, they get paid on what's called a, a fee-for-service basis. Um, so effectively, uh, you go in for, uh, you know, whatever it is, a heart repair or a knee replacement or something along those lines. Uh, there are things that they need to do to get that work done uh, there are billing codes associated with each piece of, of what they're doing. Uh, and generally, whether they're being paid by some type of commercial insurer, uh, like a Aetna or Blue Cross or something along those lines, uh, or they're getting paid by uh, a governmental body, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, uh, they're essentially going to get paid some negotiated rate of uh, what that insurer is willing to pay for those services. To the extent that you don't have insurance, you're essentially paying out of pocket. Um, but hopefully, you know, people have insurance because some of this stuff is a little bit costly. So 
um, those rates and those negotiations between the payer and, and the provider does create some ambiguity, uh, ambiguity for the individual consumer, the patient, because they may see and, and get a bill for a charge that is far in excess of what that provider actually gets paid. So there's a lot of initiatives going on right now to try to uh, demystify, be more transparent uh, in what that billing relationship looks like. So there's a deeper understanding from the consumer level of what services am I getting? How much does it actually cost? How much are they getting paid? How much is my insurance company paying them? Uh, which puts a little more power into the into the individual payment uh, patient. But that overall, that's that's one of the most common ways that these providers get paid. And there's other ways that they, you know arrangements that they make with insurers and uh, and the like in the patient uh, value-based care things along those lines. Kind of set payments for you know, outcome-based results versus actual, hey, look, I, uh, you know, I saw you for the flu and I gave you a prescription and you went on your way. Um, you know, it's more, there's other arrangements where it's more holistic about the health of the patient itself, uh, which get a little more complicated. But in general, you do service, there's a, a, an arrangement with an insurer, they pay their portion, there might be some portion paid by the individual, uh, and that's generally how it works in the industry. Yeah, can we talk about surprise billing? I, I know from experiences where maybe, for example, you're going for a colonoscopy and uh, you think that there's a fee for service, but then you get a, a surprise bill from an anesthesia department that may not necessarily be a part of that facility. Talk about surprise billing and you know, how's it happen and what can be done about it? Yeah, and that, that's part of the that's part of the challenge uh, for the consumer is, is they don't necessarily uh, on the surface know all the different players involved in the, in the service. So like for your example, uh, you're going in to you know, see a ear, nose and throat um, and they got to put you under and an anesthesiologist comes in and does their work. Um, you don't necessarily realize all the time that that anesthesiologist may actually be part of a separate medical practice and yeah. has some type of arrangement with that ear, nose, and throat doctor uh, when anesthesiology uh, services are needed to come in and, and provide that service. So you're here as the consumer, you know, you're thinking all of my charges are going to be coming from, uh, you know, my care physician there who's, who's dealing with my ear, nose, and throat issue, uh, and all of a sudden you're getting these bills from, from another practice. So, you know, that's certainly a point of emphasis, uh, you know, to make sure that, you know, patients are aware of, you know, again, what's all involved with the service, who's all involved in the service, where the bills are gonna be coming from. And you're seeing it now in the hospital and health, uh, hospital and health system space where they talk about that tri uh, pricing transparency. It's really kind of what they're getting at is, you know, to be very clear and upfront um, so you can kind of compare amongst providers, uh, you know, what those charges are going to be and what that cost of service is going to be holistically so you don't get those uh, bills that you're, you're not expecting. And you can compare it to other providers to say, you know, maybe I don't, don't want to go here anymore. I want to go somewhere else where it's a more reasonable cost to me personally out of my pocket and to my uh, insurance provider. So that transparency will trickle down whether it's by regulation, like it has been with the uh, hospitals and health systems now, 
uh, or by force of the consumer, you know, demanding that type of information so they don't have these billing issues that have crept up, um, you know, especially over the past five or so years, five to yeah. ten years. How about healthcare as an investable space? We've got about five minutes to go in this segment, so I want to just yep. start this here. But as, as an investable space, um, is it a good opportunity for folks like private equity, for example, strategic buyers, as another example, to be looking at transactions in healthcare? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity there, um, and we see a tremendous. I spend a, a ton of my time in, uh, you know, kind of that private equity home office backed ventures where they're uh, gobbling up, you know, medical practices and market share uh, in all kinds of disciplines that, you know, it could be physical therapy, it could be pain management, it could be cardiology, uh, ophthalmology, you name it, you know, where they think they uh, have an ability to, you know, create a platform and grow that platform over some geography uh, and create some level of economy of scale. So there's a a nuance to the way that they make that investment, but you know certainly uh, it's getting harder to operate as a you know sole practitioner or even just a small office. So the the idea of affiliations, whether it's with a a health system like here in Jersey, uh, Virtua or something like that, or you have some other investors uh, through the vehicle that they make these investment happen, create that scale. Um, you know, cut down the overhead of the administrative burden in doing so and kind of getting a uh, more efficient platform to deliver these services. Uh, and also by doing that, kind of create a, uh, a, bigger, a bigger bargaining uh, opportunity with the way that payers uh, arrange reimbursement with them and, and things along those lines. So certainly you pick the discipline um, whether it's you know primary care or things that people traditionally think of when, in healthcare, they're also investing heavily in behavioral health and mental health uh, and health and human service related uh, providers. Uh, you know, so all of it with that idea of you know if we do what we're doing and we're passionate about and we do it very well and we can do it on a large scale over a large geography and have that muscle of being able to uh, kind of negotiate you know, what our, our fee for these services are going to be or what our reimbursement looks like for these services while driving down the, the total, you know, administrative burden. Tremendous opportunity, yeah. you know, from an investment standpoint. Mike, before we take a quick break here, why don't you tell the audience how they can contact you if they want to learn more about you or how to work with you? Absolutely. Uh, so probably the, the easiest ways to contact me uh, is by email, which is... Uh, Mike.copa, M-I-K-E dot C-O-P-P-A at rsmus.com. Uh, you can reach me on my direct dial, 732-515-7308, uh, or you can look up my LinkedIn profile, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Copa, C-O-P-P-A. Uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn, and you'll see RSM partner. That's me. There you go. Uh, and you can reach out. And he looks just like that. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break here on Behind the Numbers. We'll be right back after this quick commercial word. Don't go anywhere. So I got this new family, and I don't know what it is about this one, but she can't seem to put down that toy all day long. Tap, 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 tap. Oh, and she even talks to it. She talks to that more than she talks to him. What's up, bro? Nice shirt. Who's she talking to? Her mom? 
She talks to her mom a lot. Why buy local? When you shop with local businesses, you're spending your money on more than just the item you're buying. You're adding a building block to your neighborhood. It starts with a single purchase, maybe a cup of coffee, groceries from a local co-op, or even a shiny new bicycle from one of the nearly 28 million small businesses nationwide. Your money doesn't stay in the till for long, though. Local business owners use the money to create a lot of economic activity in your neighborhood, like buying from suppliers, many of whom are also local businesses, paying taxes to the city, which builds and maintains the infrastructure we all rely on, employing local workers, contributing to 65% of the net new jobs each year. Add this all together and you've got a recipe for a happier, healthier, more connected neighborhood. Now that's an investment worth making. Behind the Numbers, I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking about healthcare with Mike Copa, who's a healthcare partner at RSM. Mike, we ended that first segment uh, talking about the, the investable space of healthcare and how private equity is involved <coughs> with it and so forth. Why don't we talk a little bit more about that topic here um, as we kick off the second segment and talking about facilitating the transaction, things like the, the integration process, the diligence process, and where do things go sideways? What can the audience learn uh, from your lens <clears throat> as to how to keep these things on track? Yeah, and you know, really it's even beyond uh, just the private equity groups getting involved. You know, really what, what you're asking can be uniform uh, to whoever is making that, sure. uh, making that purchase or, or looking to make that purchase. It could be uh, nonprofits looking to acquire uh, another nonprofit. It could be, you know, a, a nonprofit health system looking to acquire a, a you know, uh, historically for-profit, you know, medical practice or, or something along those lines. All of which is happening right now, um, and many of which have, you know, a common uh, potential pitfalls. You know, that doesn't matter who's buying who or who's merging with who or who's affiliating with who. Uh, that, that they need to, to really be thinking about um, if they really want to capture uh, you know, what they think the syn synergies are going to be between the organizations and, and that boost to their already existing platform that they're, they're trying to achieve. So you know, one of the biggest things is you know, really making sure you're spending time on the diligence. And a lot of people, you know, when you talk about diligence, they, they automatically say, you know, the, let me look at your balance sheet. Let me look at your income statement. You know, what's your trailing 12 months revenue stream look sure. like? And, and, and that's, all, that's all very good stuff. Um, but really what's, what's driving these businesses is that nuance of how they encounter a patient, how they deal with their payers, uh, how they bill their insurers, you know, all of those things. So if your diligence is not inclusive of kind of looking for skeletons in the closet of what's going on with their payer arrangements. You know, uh, is this, uh, you know, 
insurance contract, is it sustainable? Is it, um, you know, is it going to be due, you know, is it going to be void uh, sometime soon? Um, do they have billing issues? Are they under uh, audit or investigation by these payers or some regulatory body or something along those lines? To really expand that diligence beyond your, your waterfall analysis or, or something like that, to really understand what's going on in their uh, coding documentation and, and billing cycles. Um, you know, if it also going beyond uh, just the, the balance sheet and income statement and looking at what technology are they using? Can it be integrated into what we're using, uh, what we utilize as a system or as a practice or whatever the case may be? You know, they may be on antiquated uh, EHR platforms, electronic health records or electronic medical record platforms uh, that will not play nicely and, and information is not easily extractable that can be brought into a new environment. That doesn't necessarily preclude you from making those acquisitions, but it's certainly something you're going to want to know on the front end, both when you're pricing it and understanding what kind of cost it's going to take to get that uh, integrated into your system. Uh, you know, obviously taxes is, is very important and overall compliance, um, you know, are there uh, privacy issues with health healthcare information, HIPAA? Um, you know, are there, uh, you know, other, you know, Department of Justice investigations, you know, things along those mm -hmm. lines. So really just really understanding holistically when you're talking about the medical field and, and, and the healthcare industry as a whole, understanding what you're buying because yeah, there's indemnifications and all those things that could be put into these, uh, uh, these you know, buy-sell agreements. But at the end of the day, you're still dealing with what's going on and that could have reputation risk and all those things, even though maybe your investors aren't, aren't paying for the outcome. But taking that time, really making a robust diligence process, understanding what you're buying it, buying, pricing it correctly, and having a, you know, 100-day plan or whatever you want to refer to it as, of really bringing that on board uh, without significant disruption to your existing operations. That's really what you need to be thinking about and not just, you know, we're going to do a, 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 you know, very quick and dirty, uh, you know, financial analysis and, and call it a day. And maybe sometimes that's right for the very small acquisitions, but yeah. you're looking to do anything sizable, move into other states, you know, things along those lines. You, you really got to be thinking about it holistically. It's a little bit different than some other industries. There's so many, uh, regulatory bodies and arrangements and people involved, stakeholders involved, uh, that it, it's worth taking the time uh, to make sure that you get your value on the back end. And I've seen it uh, numerous times where that, um, that level of care wasn't taken and they bought things that did not quite pan out, mm -hmm. you know, the way that they were hoping, which yeah. drains the entire company, not just what you bought. So much complexity, so many different layers. What's the pandemic done to throw yet another curveball into that whole mix? Um, from, from my particular point of view and, and the, the direct client base that I, that I served, I think you know, in, the, in the early stages of it, uh, it slowed things down tremendously. There was uh, almost every single one of my clients had some type of M&A activity uh, on their deck um, you know, in February, March, April um, that as the pandemic uh, unfolded and, you know, people started to realize this was going to be a little longer term than uh, maybe what uh, was initially uh, anticipated or at least hoped for. Um, that whole M&A environment slowed down 
and I would say probably until about uh, midsummer, uh, you saw, saw it starting to pick back up again. And uh, right now, it is on fire as far as my perspective is concerned. There is just so much interest in uh, this particular space. Um, and I think it's just a combination of you know, what's going on in the, in the political environment and uh, changes that are you know, on the horizon for the industry. Um, I think just, you know, there's, whether it's dry powder or whatever you want to refer to it as, I think there's, you know, money laying around that, you know, people want to get uh, into play. And there's some, some really good opportunities out there uh, in the healthcare industry, all of what we talked about today, not just, you know, one specific part of it, um, that as we look to close out the year, even with the pandemic still going on, uh, there is a push to, you know, get some of these deals going and closed, you know, as soon as possible, even if you have to do the diligence, you know, in some type of remote capacity or, or something along yeah. those lines. Where you have to have things, there are certain deals that are in place that I know of that are, uh, you need to have some level of in-person, you know, uh, reviews and things along those lines and other regulatory bodies. They're still being held up because obviously not everybody is uh, back to work and face to face um, and things along those lines, but there's no lack of interest to make that happen once you know all the green lights are in place to to have it go down. So the pandemic slowed things down, uh, but I think also has created kind of a, a lot of pent up um, uh, excitement about these investments. And you know I think if you do your diligence and price it right, which I'm sure you'll, there'll be some uh, uh, competition out there to to close some of these deals. Uh, but I think if you, you know, align with your investment strategy and stay on course and do do your diligence, there's some good deals out there to have. Yeah, Mike. What's the best way for folks to contact you if they want to learn more about that? Uh, again, I think it's the uh, you know email address mike.copa m-i-k-e.c-o-p-p-a at rsmus.com. Um, my direct dial seven three two five one five seven three zero eight. Uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, uh, COPA, C-O-P-P-A, uh, on LinkedIn, partner at RSM. So, Yeah, Mike, we've got just a couple of minutes to go here in the program. Right. I want to try and squeeze in just a little bit more here and kind of dovetail a couple of topics, uh, maybe telehealth and mental health, if it makes sense to dovetail yep. the two. But um, from the perspective that look, right now in the middle of a pandemic, mental health is is forefront in everybody's mind. Everybody's dealing with something. And um, in, in some instances, you can't access your relatives, for example, if they're, if they're living in a nursing home or an assisted right. living facility. And telehealth has become such an important component of that. Talk a little bit in, in the four minutes or so we have here about the, the telehealth and mental health component of healthcare right now and where that's headed in your view. Yeah. So. It, from my view, telehealth is, is here to stay. Uh, it was not an easy, um, an easy feat pre-COVID. There was a lot of state-by-state uh, -state regulations around it. There was a lot of uh, reimbursement challenges around it, all of those things, much of which, uh, at least for the time being, supposedly is a temporary alleviation of uh, those, those barriers to telehealth. And telehealth, you know, even though as the pandemic has worn on it, it has it has lessened the number of encounters from telehealth, but still up from uh, what it was pre-COVID. So, it, it, I think by and large everybody thinks telehealth uh, is a is a significant component to the future of all providers, uh, 
uh, especially in you know, the emphasis on mental and behavioral health. Obviously, people are uh, very challenged right now in, in those departments, turning to you know, drugs and alcohol um, and, and other matters you know, with, with what's going on here. There's uh, bouts of depression. There's all kinds of things going on. There are still adults and, and children living with uh, disabilities, intellectual disabilities, all of those things. Uh, a pandemic does not stop you know, what, what these people need on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and many of our clients in this space, to a certain extent, are busier than they have ever been. Hmm. Uh, and telehealth is, has been a significant component of uh, making that happen when they can't see people face-to-face. -face. And I think it's also telling the lesson of you don't necessarily need to see somebody face-to-face, -face, and there's certainly things that can be done effectively uh, in a remote environment. So I think what's going to happen, um, and I, you know, a lot of my colleagues agree, um, you know, telehealth and the regulations around it, the reimbursement ranges around it are going to be more favorable uh, and continue to be favorable going forward. Maybe not exactly how it is right now, uh, but when you think about what the future of healthcare looks like, that it's going to be you know, more consumer-based, um, uh, you know, more on-demand. Uh, the way you get paid is going to be more for the value that you bring to the patient. Telehealth is a, a significant component um, of achieving those goals and making sure that the people that you care for, the patients that you care for, the, the family and children that you care for uh, are cared for properly um, and have very positive outcomes yep. uh, when they do encounter you. Great. Well, on that note, unfortunately, we're out of time. Mike, thank you for joining us today on Behind the Numbers. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you at home for watching and listening. Uh, please be sure to hit the subscribe button to know what we're up to going forward. I'm Dave Bookbinder. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Let's chat sometime. You take care. Stay well. We'll see you next time on Behind the Numbers.